0: Amen. Open up your Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, Song of Solomon. You guys ready to get uncomfortable? Two weeks. It's going to be really uncomfortable. Today should be fairly all right. Uh, This past week and a half, I was at uh, a gathering of Christians, and there were two men who were sharing a testimony. And the testimony was fairly irrelevant to one of the things that was said This guy had been in jail for a couple decades, from the best I could understand, and he was in jail for murder. He grew up in Humboldt Park, um, got into the gang scene very early on, the drug scene, and uh, one of the things he said is this, Satan had a plan for my life and an identity to give me. I'd never heard it like that. This is young kid growing up in Humboldt Park and Satan picks him out and he has a plan for that kid's life and he was able to draw connections to these pivotal moments in his life where he saw it as nothing less than the evil one orchestrating his life, putting him in positions and assigning an identity to him. You are a murderer. You are blank and just this identity that was given him profoundly and he had to go to jail to have this identity dismantled and to have a new identity reassigned to him now the identity that he had to realize that satan wanted to give him was you are broken defiled and impure and yet jesus in prison meets him and says no you are redeemed you are whole and you are pure in jesus christ I've shared with you my exhaustive sadness with the state of Christian singles and engaged in the evangelical church. My wife and I are broken hearted at what we see happening with the sexual immorality um, for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. It is heartbreaking. And what we have learned is that from the moment kids grow up, that Satan has a plan for their life and an identity to give them. And we have to preach to them the truth. Moms, dads, pastors, leaders, friends, family friends, aunts, uncles, they're being bombarded with lies. And I'm here to tell you, the church, singles, and engaged have bought hook, line, and sinker into the identity and to the plan of the evil one over and over again. And it's interesting when we talk to them, we say, whose fault is it? On one hand, I want to look at, look at these kids and say, um, I believe your parents are responsible for a significant portion of your not being developed with a solid Christian sexual ethic and view of sexuality. That's true. I also want to say the culture has heavily influenced you. You've bought hook, line, and sinker into their lives. But listen to me. This is really interesting. You can figure out what this means on your own. Almost all of them, you know who they hold responsible for not training them about sexual ethics and right sexual thinking? Do you know who it is? The church. It's interesting because I'm like, you want to blame the church? Where were your mom and dad? Where were your grandma and grandpa? Where were your aunts and uncles? Where were the God-fearing men and women in your life? And it's interesting because here's what they say. It was the church never taught it. The church taught us a wrong view. The church is responsible. I don't know if that's a ploy of the evil one. I don't know if it's everybody's fault, but here's what I know. May it not be so at the village church. May it not be so with moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. Um, I have heard from enough people, and I have no issue saying this, um, we're old Uh, this is not relevant. I want you to hear me. If you're old, You need to get a vocabulary to communicate the will of God in a compelling way to your kids and to your grandkids and to your great-grandkids because you have a legacy to leave. You have God's wisdom and truth to share and this is not irrelevant. If you even sit in this sermon and you hear and maybe for the first time empathize with the culture and the plight of young people and sexuality, I pray that God would give you clarity and He would give you wisdom and He would give you discernment and power to measurably change, we'll just say, the sexual development and identity and the plan that Satan has for the young people in our church and in our life. And then you might say, this stops at young people. I'm telling you, talk to divorced and widowed people and it is just as big of a problem. This is not a young person's issue. Purity and obeying and living out God's will for sexuality and singleness is a church-wide issue and it spans Demographics. The battle is very simple. Who will I believe, my ever changing culture or the unchanging Word of God? That is what this fundamentally comes down to. That is where the battle is in the hearts of everyone. Despite the tugs and the pulls and the heart wrenching relationships and the desires and the attractions, when you break it down, it comes down to this Who will I believe, the ever changing culture, the unchanging? Word of God. Uh, when we talk to engaged couples and dating couples, uh, here's some things that we often often hear. We're getting married anyways. What does it change and what does it matter? I've already given up my virginity. Why does it matter now? For them, virginity and purity is about a physical act and not about a heart condition. If it doesn't make sense, then why should I obey. Isn't God's only concern monogamy? Isn't that His only concern? These are common threads that we're hearing regularly. There, um, I'll, I'll leave the guy nameless, but there is a popular, um, now first-time author, teacher, and podcaster who's making his way on the podcast circuit. And if that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, it is the front lines of training for many church leaders and many Christians right now. And so this guy is making his way through the podcast circuit. He's very influential. His personal podcast is enormous. And I listened to one of his podcasts on a very controversial sexual issue. It's controversial culturally, but it's not controversial biblically. Let me just tell you the subject. Is crystal clear. It's not really an issue. But here's, here's what he says. On this issue of sexual immorality, here's what he, he said I believe if I talked with the Apostle Paul, he would tell me it's wrong. But I don't see how it hurts anything. I guess I'm a theological pragmatist. So this man is influencing. And this man has captured the language and the heart culture of younger people. I know what God's word says. I believe if I sat down with the Apostle Paul and asked him his opinion, but it doesn't make sense, so I'm a pragmatist. This is the pull of young people. And so if you're not a Christian, what I'm going to say this morning, you are not going to probably agree with 100%, and that's, that's fine. But if you are a Christian, the battle comes down to this. Will I believe the ever-changing culture or the unchanging Word of God? That's what this comes down to. And so you need to know when you are working with people, that is the battle. That is the issue. Who will you obey? And You just need to understand theological pragmatism is, is the battle. Now, Song of Solomon. You ready to go? I've done my introduction. Song of Solomon is a beautiful, emotional awkward, uncomfortable at times, love song between King Solomon, the greatest womanizer in the history of the world probably, and his first love, she's called the Shulamite designating, probably um, the location that she came from. So you have Solomon, and she's called the Shulamite woman. And uh, Solomon is smitten and in love, and she is smitten and in love. And in Song Solomon one, it is called the song song. Of songs, of all of Solomon's 1,005 songs, this is the greatest song that he has written. This is the pinnacle. This is the one that God's people stepped back and said, Man, Solomon, um, this is the song where you, you were number one on, on Billboard's top 50 for like 300 weeks, okay? Like, this is the one where you had this thing nailed down. And I imagine, as uh, people read this book, I imagine Solomon in his more pure years when his heart was more inclined to follow God, I imagine him saying something like this, as he considered the nations around him and their rampant sexual immorality. I mean, crazy sexual immorality. Stuff like, even in America, what we see as hidden in different places was public in so many of these nations. And I imagine him looking at people and saying, look at all of the sexual chaos going on all around. Does that really feel like it's just sex? Look at the abortions. Look at the STD rates. Look at the heartbreak. Look at the divorce rate. Look at the bitterness. Is it really just sex? Is that all it really just is? And he writes this song, and this song is plopped right into the middle of Scripture. Uh, It's almost as if God knew God's people were going to go one direction or another. Asceticism is this, all pleasure is bad. Ooh, don't touch it. It's bad. Your desires are yucky. Stay away from it. It's evil. And the Christian church has been really guilty of this. In fact... I'll just call this out. It has not been until the last couple generations that that shift has happened publicly in the church away from functional asceticism, which is why in your community groups, the older your group, the more uncomfortable this is. And that is the feedback that comes back. The younger the group, they are throwing out... Their issues. They are putting things on the table publicly. We're talking about cultural shifts in America from asceticism the other direction. But then there is the American culture, which is hedonism, which is if it feels good, indulge. If you desire it, it is who you are. It is your identity. And the church has to toe this line of we are not prudes, but we are not hedonists. We are not afraid of this subject. But we are not liberal in just saying your identity is bound up in your sexual desire. We have to be better than this. We have to be more clear than this. Now, in this, in this, in this passage, this, this couple is finding themselves at the very beginning of Song of Solomon from um, probably engaged or just previously, uh, but right before they're engaged or betrothed. And the book follows them until um, really next week where they get married. So if we're gonna talk about weddings, we're not gonna talk about wedding nights, that's two weeks, okay? But next week, we're gonna talk about weddings. Just prepare your hearts and your children so you know when people should come in here. Um, And and then it takes them, after their wedding, um, through their marriage to the point where at the end of the book, they get to leave, or particularly this woman gets to leave, a legacy for some people. So it's a really interesting book that follows their story from dating and engagement all the way until their older years. In the middle of it, they have some conflict and some fights and it's filled with affection and lovesickness. And so right right now, here's what has happened. So, Solomon um, has been separated from his fiance all winter long. And last week, he comes bounding over the mountains like a gazelle, like a young stag. And, and he takes this woman on an incredible date. He takes her out into the fields, out into the pasture. And uh, they talk about threats to their relationship. And then they get home, and uh, here's what happens at the very um, end. <clears throat> it says this. She looks at him and says, until the day breeze and the shadows flee, basically it's nighttime, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on Cleft Mountains. And she said to him, turn, go away, go in the opposite direction. Uh, Cleft Mountains literally means the mountains of Bether or the mountains of separation. And she says, look, we've been apart for a while. It's now time for us to be apart again. Because if you don't leave now, I'm going to give my body to you, and I am an honorable, respectable woman of God, and you will leave. He does not pressure her. You see an honorable man throughout this entire process. And so we find here is this woman who says, it's time for you to leave. Our wedding is coming soon enough. It's like six verses away from this. Um, You can wait. It's going to be fine. And now we get to the verse of today, which is chapter 3, verse 1. And here's what I want to do before we really get into it. I want to just read for you um, the majority of the text we're going to be studying today. And I want you to just hear it so you can hear the totality of what's happening. She says, On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and in the squares, and I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him have found him not. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen the one, have you seen him whom my soul loves? She says, scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him, catch this, into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. Basically the, the bedroom where her mom and dad conceived her. Now, this has been a confusing text for a number of reasons, and there are two major interpretations. Number one is a literal interpretation, which basically means she's on her bed night after night, and she thinks to herself, I need to go find this man. So she gets up in the middle of the night. Well, by the way, only loose women and prostitutes did this, so just help you understand like, what's happening if this is a literal understanding. Then she gets up, and like a desperate, desperate woman, the opposite, by the way, of what we've seen so far and what we'll see in this book, She gets up, and she runs through the city. Finally, she sees some of the leaders, the guards, if you will, and she says, have you seen him? And then, lo and behold, guess who's also out in the middle of the night roaming about the city? Who is it? Solomon. And then she's like, hey, I left my pasture to come into the city of Jerusalem. I've been traveling for a few hours. I finally found you. Now, we're going to travel a few hours back to the pasture where my mother's house lived, like where I still live with my mom. We're going to kick her out of her bedroom, and you and I are going to go make love. Does that sound like rational to anybody else in this room, right? Um, so the second interpretation, by the way, I've not read one commentator who believes this is actually intended to be a literal description of what happened. Um, I have read some crazy people who have said she is wrestling with the loss of her virginity, and she's fearful about it. I mean, there are some crazy interpretations about this stuff. So, um, but the other interpretation, which the majority of commentators share, and I do as well, is that this is a dream. And there is actually really good textual reason for thinking this is a dream. Literally, she says, night after night. So this is a repetitive um, dream that she seems to be having. And then number two, where is she doing the seeking? She's seeking for him on her bed. Meaning, while she's on her bed, she's having this dream. And here's what seems to be happening. Uh, Solomon parted ways. He went his way after their awesome date. And then she gathers the daughters of Jerusalem and basically says, Can I tell you about a dream I'm having? And here's what she's doing. She's trying to affirm to them, like, this is good. This desire that I have for this man, this sexual desire, this love for him is really good. But can I tell you about this like, nightmare that I'm having every, every single night? And this is really the point. Uh, the point is to show that her affection and desire is good, and she is also going to contain it. We're going to watch this. So here's what we do know. We know this follows a romantic date. We know that um, separation causes her desire to increase. We also know they're not married because they're not living together, and the wedding doesn't happen until chapter 3, verse 6. So are they married? Everybody say no. No. Great. And Song of Solomon 2. Sorry, we'll go to point number one in your notes. My desires are more powerful than... You can fill in the blank. I wrote logic wise counsel, the best sermon you've ever heard like this one, pretty sure. <laughs> At the end of, of Song Psalm in chapter eight, verse seven, um, she says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. I mean, this is objectively one of the most powerful experiences any human being is going to go through to the point where many of you in this room have forsaken all other people and committed your entire life with very little knowledge of that person to one human being. You guys catch that? There is something so powerful about this whole thing of love and desire and attraction That it makes people stand up on one day and forsake all other human beings with almost no knowledge of somebody and commit their life to them. That's how crazy and powerful this is. It sounds like a drug addict to me, but whatever. Which is why I want to preface this. I want to say if you don't have Jesus, you will be a slave to your desires because they're more powerful than you can possibly imagine. There is no issue like sexuality, desires, and relationships that makes me want to see people trust Jesus more because it is the primary place in their life where they are out of control. They are controlled by their desires and their emotions. And it's like Jesus just wants to come in and say, how's it going without me? And if you talk to almost every single person on this planet, their sexual and relational lives are in absolute chaos. And let's be honest, so is the church. But you Have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be like this. Verse one, she says, On my bed, by night, literally night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I want to share with you three things about desires. Sexual desires are uniquely powerful. Look at verse one. On my bed by night I sought. Verse 2, I will seek him. Verse 2, I sought him but found him not. Verse 3, have you seen him? Verse 4, when I found him, I held him and would not let him go until. Do you see how powerful these desires are? Now, I just need you to acknowledge this because as we move on in the sermon, you have to be able to stare sexual attraction and desire in the face and say this is a God-ordained god ordained powerful emotion, event, experience, set of hormones that will rush through my body. And if you underestimate its power, you will become a slave to it. One of the most important things to know is if you are going to be in control of your sexuality and your desires is you cannot underestimate the strength and the power that it actually has. Number two, sexual desires are powerfully heightened, I would say, through patient ahava. You might be like, what the heck is ahava? Uh, We've talked about this. There are three Hebrew words um, for love. And the first word is raya. Raya is a friendship love. Raya means like you and me are buddies, okay? Pastor Tim and I, Pastor Craig and I were buddies. Um, The second word is dode. Say dode. I just love that. Okay, good. You just said sexual love in church. I just want to let you know that. Okay, I'm good. (laughs) It's a sexual love. It is the kind of love and desire where you want to give your body to somebody sexually. It's a whole different set of hormones and um, emotions that rush through your body that make you want to give yourself to this person. In Psalm 1, verse 2, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your dode, your love, your dode is better than wine. And then ahava is different. This is a word that's going to come up regularly in this text. Ahava is a soul connection, deep, lifelong, loyal commitment. It goes deeper than friendship. It's the foundation that you experience dote, or at least you're supposed to experience. It is long, deep soul love. Verse 1, she says, I sought. Verse 2, I will seek. Verse 3, have you seen? Verse 4, have I found? I sought him whom my soul loves. I will seek him whom my soul loves. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? I found him whom my soul loves. If you just read this, him whom my soul loves comes up four times in four verses. It's constant. And here's what she's saying. Him whom I have this deep soul connection. She is not saying, I am seeking for him whom I have a good friendship with. She is not saying, I am seeking for my lover. She's saying, have you seen him my best friend, the one whom I've given my soul to. And this is what I think is just so powerful, is that her sexual desire is heightened through patient Ahava. So here's here's the deal. Your body, you know this because you're smart, you're alive, your body wants dode now in moments. And when you get dode now, okay, desire goes down. But when you hold off, Okay? And you build an Ahava relationship. Dode can be sustainable over a long period of time. It's a very different relationship. And here's what she's saying. I am not going to just give my body over to Dode. I am going to give my body over to Ahava. I'm going to build a long-lasting relationship with this guy. And this is just kind of a rule for women. A woman who has Ahava wants to give her Dode to a man. Wants to. A secure, godly woman who has real Ahava with a godly man will want to give him Number three, observe this. Powerful sexual desires are God-affirmed. The reason this book is in here is to battle the lies of hedonism or asceticism. God is putting on full display, inspiring Solomon to write this, what's going to be a fairly risque song, and he's going to publish it for all generations and all of humanity to see to make sure every one of you know this. God affirms sexual desire. God made it. He is not prude. Now again, some of you, you know this, but I want to ask you, do you believe it? So moms and dads, let's have a little chat. Are you prepared to affirm and protect your child's God-ordained sexual awakening and adolescence? Are you prepared? Are you afraid of it? Are you prepared that they will have a necessary hormonal rush to their bodies which will necessarily... Uh, result in sexual desire? Are you prepared to affirm as this culture bombards them with lies of hedonism or maybe their former church culture bombards them with lies of asceticism, are you prepared to say God made you good? God made you right. But hear me, your desires are broken. Your desires are good, but your desires are broken. Let me train you and teach you from God's very word how you handle all of these weird things that are happening to you. Singles, are you prepared to affirm and protect your desire for sexuality as good and God-blessed? Many of you are willing to affirm it, but are you willing to protect it as good and God-blessed and use it the way he wants you engage people? Are you prepared to honor the goodness of your desires and yet control your body and protect your fiancé? Mentors, are you prepared for a generation of youth where they are thinking and talking about this subject with a profound amount of knowledge, okay, but no narrative to put that knowledge in? For example, fact. I have sexual desires. What will I do with this fact? The world says, here's the story, Michael. This is the narrative you put it in. You are your desires. Your identity is what you want. Give yourself to it. So there are facts that you can affirm. But you need to be prepared to combat the narrative that the culture and the world is going to take that fact and put it in in the story they're going to tell your children. Here's what God's narrative says. Your desires are good. They are ordained by God. They are broken and you need training. But hear me. God has made you to thrive in the context of marriage with these desires. Are you prepared to tell them a different narrative? Are you prepared to dismantle the world's narrative? And I'll just, I'll tell you this. One of the greatest dismantling tools you can ever give somebody is this. Go, go, watch the relationships in your life, the marriages in your life, and you tell me how it's going. If you want that, then do what they do. But if you want something different, let's talk. Because the world is filled with brokenness everywhere when it comes to this subject. So here's a question that is asked regularly. Did they have sex yet? And we know they did not have sex for three reasons. Number one, I don't know if you know this, but in this this context, this culture, Deuteronomy 22 says, um, that if a woman has sex outside of marriage, what what is she to be? Stoned. I'm guessing. I'm just going to throw it out there, okay? I'm guessing They're not writing and publishing a song where she is advertising her blatant immorality by which, when people read this, they're going to kill her. Anybody? 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 Probably not. Okay, good. Number two, um, every time they're intimate, the song makes sure you know that they're intimate. Every time. The song is like overwhelmingly clear. The body parts they describe are the body parts they explore. And so far, he wants to see her face. So far, he looks in her eyes. He wants to talk with her and spend time with her. And then finally we get to verse 5, which proves it is the emphasis that they waited. Verse 5, number 2 in your notes says, My desires are not my destiny. And I would add, nor are they my identity. Here's the lie. I I just want to kill once and for all. If my body desires something, it must be good and it must be my identity. We have to teach people is a desire's Are good but broken, and that our desires need to be under the authority of the Word of God, which is whole and pure. (laughs) This is the lie. Your kid has an inclination towards something, and the culture will enter in, swoop in, and say, This is who you are. Give yourself to this now. Be who you fully are because you are the summation of your desires. And I just want to enter into this and say, you are not a slave to your desires. You are not a slave to your desires if you're in Jesus Christ. Your identity is not in who you want to have sex with, your identity is in Jesus Christ. And God has given you a powerful spirit of love and self control. And you now, by the power of God, have the Holy Spirit and can use this self control for your good other people's protection, and God's glory. Verse 5. She tells these daughters of Jerusalem her dream, and we've seen this before, and I want to revisit it because I think it's really meaningful, and it helps you understand the boundaries that this girl is putting in place in her life. She looks at the daughters of Jerusalem, just telling her about this crazy dream she had. Um, she's afraid of losing this guy. She's excited to have sex with him. And she brings him to his mother's chamber. And makes love to the guy. She's like telling him this dream, and then they're like, well, how far did you go? How far did you go? And like typical girls, like, you know, like uh, what would you do, you know? Um, not Christian girls. I'm just saying girls. Just Christian. <laughs> Christian girls are better than that, right? Okay, good. Sorry. Just make sure I don't get in trouble. Why well, wait? She looks at them and says, I adjure you. I plead with you. I can't really speak stronger than this. Daughters of Jerusalem by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Why wait? You, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to like these reasons. Can going to be really clear with you. You're going to walk out of here and be like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I'm me and I'm awesome. Fine. If you're a Christian, you have to take this seriously. Why, why should I even wait? Why should I even care about this issue in my life when the whole world does not care? God said it. Is that pretty clear? Does God waste words? Is God arbitrarily making rules? Like I'm bored. Let's make like another 300 rules for these people. No, God's not like your mom and dad. With like when they're grumpy, they're like putting all these rules around you and making your life hard. That's not what they're like. God never makes an arbitrary, random rule that is not for His good, your good, and His glory. Ever, ever, in any way. What I love about her, and this is just some advice, when you're talking to somebody who is sexually pure, they have not, we'll say, entered into the waters of sexual immorality. Um, you do not speak to them with fear. You don't speak to them with shame. I'll tell you, that's not what will be compelling to the person who has preserved their sexual purity. What I love about what this Shulamite woman does is she speaks to these, to these women, she affirms their, desp- their desire, and she casts a vision for them. What if? What could be? Here's what what I love about what she does. She says, you know that desire that you have? If you go after it too hard or the wrong way, you'll lose everything you want. So we talked about the does and the gazelles, etc. If you're going to catch a doe of deer, okay, what do you have to do? Very slow, very patient, very calculated... And if you move too quickly, what happens? Gone. Right? Right, Tim? Tim kills animals. (laughs) Hashtag. He also got shot in the face one time. Pretty sweet. True story. Next sermon. Tell that story. She's looking at them and saying, I know what you want. And you can have it. But if you move too fast... That ahava, which is the love she's speaking of here, because she's talking to girls and talking to guys, she's like, you know the dough do you want, right? <laughs> That'd be a different conversation. She's talking to the ladies. The ahava that you want, if you move too fast, and you're not skillful and tactful and very, very intentional about this, it's gone. It's gone. And she speaks to their desires. She says, you can have this. And when you stir up or you awaken a gazelle or a doe, it's gone. You have to catch it with intentionality. And if you can be cautious and intentional, you can get the animal. That's what she's saying. And yet that is not what our culture says. Our culture says, run! When you see it, start screaming and go after it. Well, what happens when you scream at a deer you're trying to hunt? It's gone, right? And sometimes, sometimes people get lucky and they're like, ah, close my eyes, bang! And they shoot something as the deer is running and they get it. That's like one in a million, by the way. That's not the norm. Just because there's a lucky person next to you or in your family does not mean that that is how it's going to work out for you. With those who are pure, we speak to the hope and to the vision of what God could do in their life. And then there are those who are in the middle of sexual immorality. And you know what? I'm going to give you one tool to put in your arsenal. 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 4, verses 3-8. to eight. Never forget this text. If I had read this text, this would have saved me and so many people from any level of sexual immorality. It is actually one of the most interesting, scary texts in Scripture. If you're in the middle of sexual immorality right now, I want to just ask you, whether you agree with me or disagree, whether you like me or this sermon or not, hold on for a moment, and I want you to hear the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3-8, to eight. for this is the will of God, your sanctification, or your holiness, your righteousness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so you, sexually immoral person, are saying, well, what does that really mean? I mean, how far can I go? Like, you're going to self-justify, which is what desires do, because desires, unchecked, make us irrational, which is true. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Yeah, 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 Michael, holiness and honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Got it. And then this is what he says. Christian, hear me you who are in immorality right now, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Your love, quote, toward this person is a transgression. Let me put it in English words that communicate the emotion. It is a violation. If you had a daughter and some dude tried to have sex with her, you would say, you are violating my daughter. Right? Even if your daughter is complicit, would you be angry? The answer for every dude in this room is, yes! Right? Now, God in heaven is looking down and saying, you, who engage in sexual immorality with another Christian, I mean, non-Christian, that's already off the table, it's been addressed with, you are transgressing that person. You are violating that person. But it doesn't stop here, right? I mean, the language keeps growing and escalating. He calls it a transgression. It's not sanctified or blessed by God. He says this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me just plainly say this. When someone is in sexual immorality, you have a different conversation. And the different conversation is serious warning. And the conversation goes like this. You too, you may be fine, but God calls this a violation, and his promises vengeance. I taught a bunch of high schoolers um, last year on this, and I gave multiple illustrations of how I have seen sexual immorality amongst Christians go very bad for them through the course of their marriage. This has been a theme that my wife and I have experienced, that couples who mess around with this the way over time um, God is almost wired into the very rhythm and system of their relationship for it to harm them negatively. This has been a powerful reality that we've seen. Um, but God speaks directly into this and He just has these stern warnings. If you want God to take vengeance on you, go this route. It's, is that serious, anybody? Yeah. Why wait? Number two, because of sexuality's sheer power. First Corinthians 6.18, Paul says it a different way. Flee sexual immorality. This is this is one of these verses that nobody knows what it means, but we know how to apply it. You know what I mean? Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's interesting, like it's almost like Paul saying, I would rather you steal or lie or cheat or manipulate than mess around with sexuality. Why? Because it has an Unparalleled power over you than any other sin, and we watch this. Why wait? Number three, your utter value. I love the word utter, particularly because you think of cows, but it means like complete, right? It's like this trick word. Your utter value. You're to- like you are so valuable. It's it's like somebody being given a million dollars and they just set it on fire. You just don't understand what you're holding in your hand. Your sexuality is a gift from God for another person should he ordain you to be married. And it is so valuable. But the lie of culture is it's just sex. But the truth of God is it is blessed and it is a profound gift that you have the privilege to steward that God has given you. One, one pastor said it this way. I like this. He said, my body is not the appetizer. It's the dessert. Most people want to go right for that. It's like, no, 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 no. This is what comes at the end. This is not what you get at the beginning. Why do so so many Christians ignore this? I'll give you two words. Desperation and lust. Mostly for the women, desperation. Not totally, but mostly. And mostly for the men, it's lust. Sometimes the men are desperate also. I don't want to do anything or, or flirt with anything as powerful as sexuality with a motivation of desperation or lust. I want to use this amazing thing that God has given me Um, with a spirit of self-control for the glory of God. And if you have not even tapped into into this part of your life and you have still remained sexually pure, this is one of the most beautiful opportunities that you have to not believe the lies of culture uh, that are always changing, but to submit your life under the unchanging word of God. Satan has a plan for your life. His plan is to destroy you. His plan is to lie to you. His plan is to trick you. God's plan for your life is utterly different. It is to heal you. It is to redeem you. It is to protect you. It is that you might enjoy the gifts he's given you and the way that he's given given them to us. Jesus is always good. Satan's plans are always bad. And so we need to get to a point where we understand this. I need, first and foremost, to trust in Jesus Christ. I have to. Because his way is the way of life. And my desires are so strong until I have the Holy Spirit which gives me self-control, I will never be able to tame the monster that is inside of me. But by the Holy Spirit, through trusting in Jesus Christ, I now have the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Self-control. It is one of the most powerful and beautiful gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. So some of you are, and I would probably say the majority of you here would say, okay, what um, what if I've already royally messed up? Let me just give you four things. Number one, light must be shined. You hear me talk about this a lot, and this is why most people will never overcome um, sexual sin, is because we're petrified of exposing it. Sin always grows in the dark until you shine the light on it with a mentor, pastor, friend, or family member that you can trust. It will always have power. That's the nature of it. Number two, boundaries have to be drawn. Have to be. This is something you're probably going to have to do with someone else and have them help you. Your diagnosis, number three, it has to be accurate. This is sin, always outside of the context of marriage. But it is a good desire. If you diagnose the desire as evil, okay, you're going to do more harm than good. The diagnosis has to hold in tension the goodness of what you want and the sin of the execution. And then finally, Jesus must be near. You need his help to overcome something so powerful in your life. I want to close with, I think, one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture for people who have fallen, and then we'll celebrate communion. Luke seven forty one. a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. I'd rather owe 50, right? Good. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, Jesus, you're so smart. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You knew who this woman was? A sexually immoral woman where everybody in the community knew her sins. Jesus <clears throat> says, therefore, I tell you, and I want you to hear me if you have royally messed up. You, you're going to love Jesus. <laughs> he says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they are forgiven much. They are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You know, it's interesting, the people who have the most grace and skill in dealing with young people's issues are the ones who've messed up, and the ones with the most judgment are the ones who were the good boys and girls. It's a crazy kind of thing that happens. Jesus looks at her, he says to her, "Your sins are forgiven." Some of you just need to hear that today. You are purified. This is being redeemed. This is not your identity. This is not your destiny. You are being given a second chance, or a third, or a fiftieth. And I think Jesus just loves to heal broken, shattered people. And let's be honest, this woman is one of the worst. And if he can look at her and say, you're forgiven, you're washed, can he do that for you? Verse 39, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He just looks at the woman because she's hearing this. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I have a hunch uh, most of you are probably closer to the woman than you are to the pure person. I have a hunch. In dealing with most people, I've learned that the majority of Christians have not used their sexuality to honor, honor God. And I want to say, let's do things different. Let's learn from this couple. Let's receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let's repent of our immorality. Let's begin to grow a passion to train and encourage and develop the next generation of young people that we won't be like the former generations who refused to talk about it. And we won't be like the former generations who told us that that desire is not from God. But we will affirm what God has made in them but teach them to control it. We will teach them to use it for the honor of God in the context of marriage. That will produce healthy people. This is one of my core convictions. I believe that Village Church is going to raise up an incredibly awesome group of young people who go through junior high and high school. They're going to go into these crazy public schools that are doing crazy things, and they're going to have a mom and a dad or two people in their life who love them, and they are going to be functional human beings, and they're going to be secure because pastors and leaders and teachers and mentors and friends and family and community group leaders... Look at their kids and constantly tell them you're loved, you're secure, you're valuable. They'll have a team of people hovering around them to protect them. They're going to grow up and they're going to see all these desperate boys and girls and men and women doing desperate, lusty things. They're going to say, that's dumb. I'm going to do something different because I look at the families and the marriages in my church and I say, I'd like to be more like that than like those losers. And then they step back and they say, huh. I see what people are doing in college, and they find a godly woman, and they believe the message of Song of Solomon, and they believe the message of Paul, and they say, I'm going to do this differently. And they don't carry with themselves into their marriage all of this baggage, and then you know what they do? They produce another generation after them of bright shining lights in a crazy dark world. I am convinced that in a few years, the world gets crazier. Our high school and junior high students are going to be so functional that non-Christian kids are going to look at them and say, why are you so different? And it's not going to be that difference from like 20 years ago when you were just nicer. It's going to be the difference from they are literally giving their entire lives over to sexual immorality and these kids are going to be sexually pure and believe God and his word and not the lies of the culture. That is what I'm praying for. And if you want to see like a real awesome transformation, moms, dads, grandparents, church leaders, like take care of these kids. Train them. Teach them. Stop being afraid. This is a sweet, beautiful opportunity that we have. It's amazing. I get to talk to a bunch of parents whose kids are my age and they are resolved, resolved to begin these discussions, to train their kids. It's a really awesome thing. and I have to tell you, I think we have the opportunity as a church to do this different. I think we have the opportunity to talk to our friends who are raising their kids and teach them about doing something different. There is no place that is destroying people more swiftly and we can be a bright light. So that's my prayer. And I want to take a minute. I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for our kids and uh, those of you who are engaged in dating and and pray for God's blessing. Father, um, I just have so much hope for Village Church and also at the same time so much just sadness, God. I I understand anyone in the world hearing this sermon is going to say, that is the dumbest thing they've ever heard. Lord, there's a veil. Lord, may there not be a veil over the eyes of those who have the Holy Spirit and trusted in Jesus. God, we just... um, are aware of how powerful this issue, how powerful desires are, where they invade this girl's dreams night after night after night, and it's good you've made us like this. God, I thank you for this woman, this Shulamite woman's self-control. I thank you for Solomon's honor of her, at least on the front end of their relationship. Um, and God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would equip multi-generations of people despite our generational baggage to raise up another generation of bright, shining lights who are uniquely pure and righteous for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do what we are unable to do? And Lord, for every person who has failed, which is everyone in this room to a degree or another, would you speak truth and security and forgiveness and identity to us? We are in Christ. We are forgiven. We are purified. Thank you for that. Thank you just for being so good to us. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.